Um, when Ryan first uh, broached this idea uh, to me, I, uh, I kind of thought I shouldn't do it, but then, but then uh, he, he convinced me that you know, what they wanted was something a little different or un unusual. And uh, I began to reflect on my interest in, in the war poster collection that we have uh, in, the in the division where I work in the museum. And it's a, uh, it's a collection of commercial, uh, commercially produced posters, some of which were made by the government, uh, that were collected by our graphic arts curator during the war. And uh, it includes a, a, a billboard which we actually put up in the museum one time. And it has a it's 24 sheets lithographed, which is uh, the technique that Rosenquist did not use. And we'll get into that in a minute, him being a, a painter. Uh, but Rosenquist is really uh, an interesting figure in terms of, even if you had not gone on to be uh, a wildly successful artist in the 60s, um, you know, the memoir that he recently came out with is really a uh, kind of a, a discursive meditation on how you went about producing, you know, commercial, commercial culture. I mean, he, uh, he, he grew up in uh, Fargo, North Dakota, and he became experienced at painting, uh, you know, storage tanks, you know, these immense structures, you know, out on the plains where he would paint one white and he got a reputation in, among people who own these structures of being a painter. And he moved from that into making logos for them that he was able to scale up from the smallest diagram that he was given. And he gradually, um, after a childhood where there really wasn't really much to look at, he talks about how he uh, uh, enjoyed as a child reading the, or seeing the Saturday Evening Post covers. when that magazine came in the mail. That was his first exposure to, you know, art and illustration. And he, he, he talks about spending, you know, endless hours you know, just digesting these things and, and uh, wanting to know how, how the artist had done it. Um, he eventually uh, tried to, uh, decided he would, he would stake out a, 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 a bona fide art uh, career, but he still kept the uh, the business of the commercial illustration and the, the painting of these large uh, images on large structures uh, in his back pocket as, the, as a way of making a living. And this is something that's not uncommon with people. I mean, I, I did a show about the paint by number phenomenon, uh, which was a Detroit phenomenon. People who started that business as a kind of a hobby, uh, they graduated from the assembly line at Ford Motor. It was a, it was a Detroit thing. And uh, what they could have you know, work out their art careers on on the side, some more than others, while they were still you know making making a living. But the when he when he after he moved to New York, he he uh, gradually ingratiated himself into the uh, the league, uh, the union of uh, billboard painters, and the method there, uh, which sort of defied the continuing or the I guess the beginning tradition of billboard lithography, because these were still being actually painted by hand on the spot, was he'd be uh, given a, a little image that his boss had torn out of a magazine, typically. It all seems to go back to magazine illustration. Uh, you know, a, uh, a whiskey distiller would want a rose, uh, you know, rose crown whiskey or whatever. And here, paint this. 
and here, make it look like this. Here, and so he'd have this assemblage, very much the kind of a collage that you see that he later turned into art. And he would go out with a rigger who ran the scaffold and go out to on the side of a building and paint a whiskey bottle that was you know, 85 feet tall. Now, this is a real talent. <laughs> and, it's a, and it's a skill that you don't find every day. First of all, you have to get up on there and you have to paint it close. Almost, as, it's as if you're looking at something and you're taking the dot matrix test while you're trying to paint it. You know, and when you get back, it has to be perfect and you don't really have a second chance. So he did this, he did this quite successfully for a number of years. And he tells a story about how he, uh, he painted this whiskey bottle and they said, okay, go paint another one. He painted this whiskey bottle 140 times, I wanna say, all around New York. And you know, in various settings, various situations, on billboards, sides of buildings, wherever, you know, up in the air, down on the ground. And by the time he got near the end of this assignment, he was working so close and so high up on the street, he began, just as a kind of a comment, painting, instead of the words on the bottle, he started just writing gibberish on the side of the, on the, side of the bottle. You couldn't read it from the street. It looked like writing, but he would write nursery rhymes on the side. And the riggers that he worked with kind of you know, began to freak out a little bit because they thought they'd all be fired you know, because he was losing his mind. But, but what actually ended it for him was the, uh, the alcohol, rampant alcoholism among the people that he, that he worked with and had to depend on for rigging. And he talks about being up in the air above Times Square, you know, painting something, a, a car ad or something. And uh, he, he actually saved a guy from falling over the scaffold who was drunk. He just grabbed him, you know, pulled him back. And he realized, you know, that's it. I can't, I can't do this anymore. And you, 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 re, you look at this and you go, how could he have ever done it? I just, you know, <laughs> it's just kind of thing. But so from that, from that experience, he began to, actually he had to scale down uh, his method and his art to, I mean, he's still using, you know, things that he's apparently getting from, you know, magazine tear sheets. And he's just digesting all the material that he can get and then spitting it back as a kind of a collage type collage type art. You were talking about something that made me think about an anecdote that I had heard too, which is when you scale things up and when you're that close to a, painting a giant bottle, you're seeing not only, you're having to make an image that might seem realistic um, far away, but up close it's abstract. And so one of the things that that experience that he, by painting billboards, allowed him to do is think about, think of things abstractly. Um, and I think that it, that he brings that a little bit when you see his work. He said that he was once painting a woman's face and he realized that the eyelashes were like, you know, three feet, five right. feet long, <laughs> and that they were just strokes when he was doing it. But then he needed to know how to do those strokes in a way so that from far away, they would look realistic. But up close, you know, uh, it's it's just a big shape. And I think, so I think kind of to add to what you're saying, I think the process he goes through, and a lot of what a pop artists do is they're borrowing from commercial um, processes that advertisers are using. He's a great example of that, I think. These, these, uh, these techniques that were being used before they started using photo billboards. And, and, and we talked about earlier um, conventional scales, because they used to be able to have to, to do anything really large or smaller. It was all dependent on the job. 
Yeah, and, and looking at the modeling of the woman's face in, in the painting, uh, you can see where this is coming from, you know, on, on, the so on a billboard or on the side, on the side of a building. Uh, he, was, he was known and valued in the trade for being able to render faces and, and figures, not just logos and lettering. Um, and if you worked in this, if you worked in this business, that was sort of unusual to have a kind of a broad, uh, broadly, uh, appreci broadly appreciated talent among people who would be hiring you for this work. Um, I, I collected uh, some original poster art one time from a man who had been, you know, of the same of the same vintage, maybe a little earlier, and uh, and his thing was also characters, faces, figures, and uh, he painted a couple of. Uh, you know, Ballantine beer ads, and I, I, and, and they would bring in a separate guy to paint the glass with the beer in it, with the bubbles. I mean, it was like the most finely rendered glass of beer with bubbles in it that you'd ever seen. I mean, that was a there was a guy that did that. You know, he would be the he would be the figure painter. The other guy was the bubble painter, and this and this was done all in the same composition. I mean, they don't care. And then it would be photographed, you know, and they'd have a four by five color transparency of it. And from there, it would just go into litho production and then just be put up everywhere, you know, as a 24 sheet billboard. And, you know, and there's a whole science to that too. But, but we were talking earlier about, you know, why the persistence of billboard painting, particularly in New York City and other cities, when the, the litho billboard, you know, the famous 24 sheet billboard, is so widely available and much more inexpensive to produce. I mean, if you put one, put a billboard up, you can put them all over the country. They all have a certain similarity. It's the same. They're identical, which advertisers love the predictability of it because you know so there's a model of effect that they all want to use that they can feel they can measure. Uh, but why the persistence of actually sending people out who have to go and compose a painting on the spot and then and then put it on the side of a building and I mean, there's some speculation. I think you can probably speculate that it's because of the union that he that he joined, and there's a persistence, there's a trade and craft, uh, you know, until they all got drunk and fell off their scaffolds, you know, and it continues today in what they call these spectacular billboards that you see in Times Square. The most, the classic one that you think of is the Camel ad in Times Square. That was a, I don't know, it was about a 40 foot wide billboard, and it had. It had a, a figure, a man, a face, very much modeled like that, blowing a smoke ring, you know, out of his mouth, and the smoke was steam, you know, it would just come out as you're driving up Broadway. <laughs> Look at that. Uh, in, in a way, he's sort of uh, decon deconstructing, to, for lack of a better term. Uh, normally, in an in an ad, all of this would be very simple and very straightforward, and you'd be able to look at it as you're running by it and get it. Yeah. You know, even the absence of lettering is preferred over, you know, any kind of, you can't make more than one point, then, 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 then you're gone. But what he's giving you here is an assemblage of material that normally would be, you know, a source of, uh, source of any kind of uh, the beginning of making, making an ad. I mean, it, it would never make sense as an ad, but yet it, it makes sense as the material with which you would make an ad or torn from an ad. I mean, I have a question for you in terms of advertising. You may or may not be able to talk to it. I look at this a lot of times as the color. It's 
we've got really, it's not necessarily monochrome, I think it's called grotage, where it's kind of a grisale, which is, it's just kind of like a tonal study. And, um, but were, did they do that a lot? Did they do a lot of black and white advertisings, or did they advertisements at the time, or did they use this kind of like, just two color process, or is this particular to this kind of painting? Actually, I can say probably categorically that they they never did this uh, okay. because you would want it to be as colorful as possible, which would be another reason for the persistence of actual painting on the yeah. side of a building. You you could use paint you, that would not even approach the color. I mean, well, the litho process was colorful enough, but it wouldn't even come close to what you could get out of painting at, at the time. I mean, the only time you would see Typically, I'm making a gross overgeneralization, or a gross generalization, would, would be in a magazine ad where you have a figure of authority who is represented in a kind of an FSA-like monochrome, you know, the, the doctor discussing the T-zone for camel cigarettes, you know, and his picture is in a, you know, the ad all around it is color, you know, and he's, you know, Mr. Authority in black and white. I mean, that's the only thing. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, it, I, to me, it looks like a rainy day here, but, you know. <laughs> well, I think it's, yeah. Now, we I won't go is, there. Is, is, are we all right with kind of maybe like, hearing what people have to say about this? Because I think the color does take us someplace else. I just, um, the old ever-ready battery ads, it seems to me that's what it was, or the flashlight, ever-ready flashlight ads, were done just like that. They were in a dark place, and the only light was this weird that, Okay, I hadn't thought of that. It was a magazine ad. I had thought. You all are too young to remember that. Right, exactly. Are <laughs> there other things that come up as we've been talking about this work that you've noticed? I mean, in terms of the color, it is an interesting color to think about on a human face, right? But it makes you think of light. You feel like there's light. It is, yeah, it does look like flashlight, yeah. What about the white dot in the middle? I mean, that. The white dot in the middle? Exactly. It's like it's positioned where our eye would be. Yeah, and he's kind of completing, it seems like he's completing her face with that white dot. I also see a silhouette of someone holding a cigarette, which makes me think that might have been another part of the ad, that he's taken out maybe the middle and put the two peripheries together. Um, I've also seen a piece of his where he actually had a flash from a camera embedded into the work sculpturally. So I think, I don't know, I can kind of, maybe I'm stretching it, but I think it makes us also think about um, the act of looking in light, maybe, or the photographic process. Well, I was thinking, too, in terms of what Loretta said about the battery glow when you're talking about a light glow. It's 1961, and you've kind of have a lot of this imagery, so it could maybe be like a nuclear kind of glow. Yeah, yeah. And that makes sense with other work he's done, where he's been very interested in military arms buildup, and yeah, I would say that this is not it does. And, and, and I would say 1961, people are thinking about it more than just uh, now and then. So, well, if we're on that theme, anyway, I, I like the, the, the poem, particularly those those times that are in the middle there, the green background. They look kind of they look dangerous. So tell me like, more about the poem. The poem with the with the, uh, the times in the middle with the background. They look like some kind of a gate or something that's about to fall. They, they, they give me a feeling of danger. 
It depends on when you when you start. If if you're a historian of advertising, someone will and you make an interpretation of something, someone will always come and say, "Oh yeah, well there was an earlier, ver you know, this kind of thing," and they just take it back and back and back, and before you know it, you're back to cuneiform, but you know, and, and it's like what? But um, but you're in an art museum, so yeah, whatever you want to do. Yeah, there's an old joke among curators over American history that uh, you know, they're out looking at clouds in a sky and. One isn't a curator, and one is, and the person that isn't the curator says, oh, look, up I see a horsey, a ducky, and a fish. And then the curator says, no, 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 it's not a horsey and a ducky and a fish. It's a, a, a kangaroo, a jackass, and a, you know, something else. And it's what the curator says it is. You know, I mean, you are on to something, and you have a future here in this museum. You know? <laughs> because, you know, it, you start to look at it in a different way. And, uh, uh, but what was the question? The question. The question, question was, was: Do you feel like that advertising oh, the difference is using in more fragmentation now? Or well, at the, at the turn of the century, there were all kinds of schools of advertising and what you should do and what was a good ad. It's always interesting to figure out or know, catch them, catch people who are making this stuff in the business, making it up really uh, about what they consider to be a good a good ad. You know, one man writes: It's salesmanship in print. Now that's key because in print. Um, and there's a, there's a predictive model of effect that's based on reason why copy. You know, buy this because, and then you kind of enumerate the reasons why until you just run out of space in the, in the column. Uh, the same thing could be, uh, was sort of like the basis of, you think of publicists and Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, you know, after the first, the first World War. Um, but that quickly, goes away with the arrival of film and uh, uh, lithography. I mean, there are many earlier, earlier examples, but um, the, the business of being able to convey without print is, 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 real, is really key. I mean, you don't have to learn to read to get what's going on in most of the, most of the ads. I mean, they still insist on having some explanation uh, because there are always some people that are behind the curve, and there are some very conservative purchasers of, purchasers of advertising. 
who are always behind the curve, and they're the ones that call the shots, and they're, in effect, the so-called curators of <laughs> what it is they say it is. Uh, but yeah, there is, there is a shift, it, but it is difficult to pin down, say, this is when it actually, yeah, you, you know, you can just make generalizations about it. But by the time he's working, clearly, that's what it's, that's what it's become, and that's what it's about. And he seems to be able to find, you know, like Warhol or uh, Lichtenstein, the, the most banal kinds of things from the commercial culture to chew up and spit back at us, you know. Well, it has a... It has a kind of a, a TV box uh, aspect ratio to it with the proscenium, you know, the little, uh, the curved top of the tube. I mean, it doesn't have it on the bottom. But uh, I don't know, you're probably, I'm probably treading on dangerous oh. terrain here to go off and say that's, well, yeah. <laughs> that's what it, it may be. Uh, but uh, I like the gate jail theory better. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, also, the, you know, I think. Things are open to interpretation. <laughs> that's all right. Um, anything else that people want to say about the work? Anything came up while we were talking? Hold on. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that he pulls back from all those skills that he could have as a painter. He could be using lots of color, but it's almost like he reverts back to print or photography by using such a um, limited palette. He's not exploiting his painterly skills, exploiting something artistic in that effort or something. Well, later on, or in his other work, he, he does give you a little more, I mean, this, this, the things that he's putting into his paintings are pretty, pretty impressive, you know, in terms of the color, uh, you know, Breck, Breck girl kinds of, you know, things. But no, I, I think, I mean, Except for the absence of color, he's pretty much full throttle you know, here with that figure. When you see studio shots now, I mean, it's he and his assistants on like, you know, scaffolding in front of really large <laughs> paintings. It's almost like he's really continued to to paint how he started. He's not a drip painter. That's the other no. thing. To, yeah. Yeah. It's not. Ooh. There's no dripping. Yeah. No. No drips allowed. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, with that said, on that note, um, thank you very much for coming, and uh, thank you very much for oh, thank you talking with us about this. It's great. Thanks. Yeah.